today's sermon and the next three weeks sermons have a lot of weight. Um, I feel that, um, I just feel a lot of weight for the future of our church. Um, and, and I need to know, I need to be reminded it doesn't reside on me, that Christ is the one who carries us and, um, and it is his name where the power resides. And so this morning I want you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We'll be reading verses 18 through 20. This sermon today is going to be the first of four sermons where I, Lord willing, will lay out the vision and the mission of our church. I want to do a little vision casting, if you will, over the next few weeks, really over this first month of the year in January. There is a whole lot that I am excited about. There is much that the Lord has laid upon my heart over the past several months. I came out of the sabbatical with a lot of a lot on my heart, um, and um, for reasons that, um, that belong only to the Lord, and some of those reasons have become clear, God did not allow me to immediately begin to share those things. But now I think the time is here to, uh, hopefully over the next few weeks, lay out for you guys this vision, this burden for Harbin's that is on my heart. So here's my plan. Today I want us to exegete this text, Matthew 28. 18 through 20 that's on the screen there. Uh, It is in this text that we find the biblical mandate or the biblical mission statement for the church. So the first step of vision casting is exegesis. is to draw out from the scripture what the scripture says the church should be doing. And then the next three weeks, I'm going to break down that text into application for our church and then draw for some other texts of scripture as well. I want to basically exegete today and apply over the next three weeks this text. And then on the last Sunday, the last of those three weeks, I want to put before us a challenge and I want to lay out some steps of faith that hopefully we'll be willing to take. Matter of fact, we will have a members meeting that afternoon um, on that last Sunday of January after the fellowship meal. At least that's the plan right now. So I really do feel that today's sermon, along with the next three-week sermons, are some of the most important in our church's history. Um, I get easily discouraged. You know, I wish more people were here. But like I said, what do I do, blame the flu or the babies? Which do I do here, you know? Uh, But that's okay. Trusting in the sovereignty of God and his purposes and his plans is what we've preached from day one at Harbin's. And so we don't need to stop preaching that now. But this sermon today is where I want to start by exegeting this passage of Scripture. Now, the quality in the vision, I should say the quality of any church's vision or mission isn't determined by how creative or innovative it is, but by how conformed or in line it is with the Word of God. God's mission must be our mission. The Word of God alone is our rule for faith and practice. Any mission and vision for any true church needs to be grounded by Guided by and guarded by God's mission and vision as found in his word. Now Matthew 18, Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20 is one of the primary, if not the primary text that should guide the church's mission and vision. This passage is commonly known as the Great Commission. In reality, this is one of five Great Commission texts in the scriptures. The others are in Luke chapter 24 verses 46 through 49. John chapter 20, verse 21, Mark 16, verses 14 through 19, and then, of course, Acts 1, 8. Now, each of these Great Commission texts occurs after Jesus has arisen, but none of them are completely identical. Apparently, Jesus taught some form of the Great Commission in a variety of different ways to the disciples at at a variety of different points during those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. So today I want us to focus on Matthew's version. So please stand now as we prepare to read Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. We believe at Harbin's it is the infallible and errant word of God. And therefore, we want to take it with utmost seriousness and importance. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We would be adrift amongst a sea of fleshly ideas, man-made innovations, human strategies, if it were not for your word guiding us, guarding us. And so God, we pray this morning that we, will be, that we would be faithful to the word. Grant me a mouth to speak what the word says and not what I want it to say. And grant us ears to hear your word because we know without the Holy Spirit opening ears to hear spiritual truths, they'll never be heard. So God, we pray this, we ask this, we thank you for all those that are here this morning. And Lord, we pray for our church, that you'd help us to be the church you want us to be, as you do so in the power and in the, through the presence of Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now kids, what do I have in my hands right here? What are, the, what are these called? These are Blueprints. Blueprints. I guess they were called blueprints originally because they used to be blue. But now they're just, okay, these are white prints, I guess. These are, these are blueprints, though. What do you think these are blueprints of? Anybody? Yes, a church. This church right here. These are the blueprints for this building, okay? This church building. Now, when you think about blueprints... There's always, when you have blueprints, someone who designed these blueprints. Someone who, who was the architect, the engineer, who came up with the idea. He, he designed the way it would look aesthetically, and then he put together how it needed to be structurally uh, fitted so that the building would be safe. And so there was an architect who, who put the plans together. And then, of course, there were contractors, subcontractors that were brought in to put all the pieces together and to make the building into what it is Today, And, of course, the building has a purpose, a design behind it. Now, when we think about buildings, buildings always have a purpose. They always have a design that reflects what the architect meant, what the architect wanted. So, you know, if you see a building that is an auditorium, the design of that building is to hold people. If you see a building that, that looks like a lighthouse, it has no seats in it, just a staircase and a light at the top of it, you know that building was designed for a different purpose. You don't have a lighthouse sitting down in the middle of, of a high school and expect kids to meet in there for some sort of special event like a play or something like that. That would make no sense. That wouldn't be according to the design and the purpose of that building. Nor do you have an auditorium sitting out on the point of a bay trying to guide ships in without getting hit by the rocks. That wouldn't be the purpose of that building. And so the purpose of this church building was to give us a place where we could keep rain off our heads and worship God, okay? This building is not the church. I hope you know that. This is simply our, our covering to keep us dry and warm. The church are the people of Harbin's, and that building has been designed as well. That building likewise has an architect. That building likewise has builders, 1 Corinthians 3 says that we are all building, that Christ is the foundation, but that we are all building on that foundation, and we can either build on it rightly or we can build on it wrongly. And so what we need to ask then as we build, as we as people, the people of Harbin's build on this foundation of Christ and build this church, not this building, but this church, these people the question we have to ask ourselves, what is the design of the architect? What is the purpose of the building? What's the design of the structure? And we have that design in the Great Commission. We know that Jesus is the architect of the church, and he is likewise its foundation and its cornerstone. That ultimately he is the one who builds the church, but we have been called as co-laborers to be builders. But I'm, I'm afraid that oftentimes we build poorly because we've lost sight of what the design of the church actually is. What are we designed by Christ to do? What's our aim? What's our purpose? What's our intent? What's our 
mission. The answer, of course, is found in this text we're looking at today. And so as we look at the text today, I, want to, I see three things that stand out, three things that will drive the mission of our church. The first thing I want us to see is that there is a great assertion that the mission of Harbin's must rest firmly upon. The first thing we see is a great assertion that the mission of Harbin's must rest firmly upon. Now, before I get to that assertion, which we see in verse 18, I'm going to give a little background context here. In Matthew chapter 27, we have the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus and guards placed at the tomb. And then we read in Matthew 28 of the resurrection, the guards are scared to the point that they're like dead men. And the women arrive at the tomb early Sunday morning and find it empty. And angels tell them that Jesus has arisen. And on the way to tell the disciples, they see Jesus themselves. We read that the guards, okay, they bring the news of the resurrection, the report to the Jewish elders. And they're bribed to keep quiet. And then they're given a cover story. And then we read that Jesus calls his closest disciples, they were once 12 and now they're 11, to an unnamed mountain in Galilee. And now mountains in Scripture are always important because they're places where revelation are given. And so Jesus calls his disciples to the mountain, and we read that the disciples come, they see him, they begin to worship him, and even, even though that some of the 11 are even still doubting, and it's at this point that Jesus opens his mouth and gives us these words in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus starts the Great Commission with a great assertion. An assertion of his authority. Of his power. Power to launch a worldwide mission. You see, before he gives them details of the mission, he needs to give them a solid launching pad. Or to keep with our opening illustration, a firm foundation for them to build on. And that foundation is himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, is what Jesus says. Now authority, this word here for authority, it means freedom or right to speak or act as one pleases. It therefore refers to Jesus' absolute sovereign freedom. And to help us grasp the sweeping scope of his authority, he says that all authority has been given to him. He doesn't just say authority has been given to me, but all, all authority has been given to me. He possesses all authority. It is unrestricted in any sort of way. It is exhaustive in its capacity and comprehensive in its jurisdiction. It says all authority in heaven and earth. There is no place where Christ isn't king. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch on the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And this authority, according to Jesus, was given to him. Well, by whom? By the Father. Now, you may ask, you may be saying, didn't Jesus, as God, the second person of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, didn't Jesus always have authority? How is it that authority was given to him? Well, you're right. In his divine nature, Jesus never ceased to ontologically possess all authority. But in his human nature, the scriptures teach us that he set aside his divine prerogatives divesting himself in his human nature of, of the authority that he has as the second person of the Godhead. And we see this in the text we read earlier today in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This is divine condescension. The Son of God divesting himself of his divine rights and freedom and majesty. He made himself weak. He made himself a slave. He made himself to be under the law. Why? To save those who were weak and in slavery and under the bondage of the law. You see, before 
creation, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into a voluntary covenant of redemption. A covenant that would, for the purpose of saving God's elect, and that covenant involved the Father sending the Son into our sin-ridden world, and the Son voluntarily descending into our sin-ridden world to save His people. And once Jesus had finished His work, as evidenced by the resurrection, we read, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, that he was given all authority. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God has exalted him and given him authority. And look again at the sweeping nature of this authority, so that every name and every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. So now Jesus, even in his human nature, lives with absolute authority. This is what the Apostle Peter proclaimed in his very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. God has made him. God has given him all authority. The Father, and it says, was given. And that verb in the text here, in the, in the original language, indicates a specific single point in time. So when was the authority given to Jesus? When did that happen? It happened at the resurrection. It was given by the Father at the resurrection as a reward for Jesus' redemptive obedience. Romans 1.4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this authority is sweeping in its scope and in its nature. Ephesians 1.20. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 1 Peter 3.22 teaches us that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And of course this famous passage from Daniel chapter 7. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the authority of our Jesus. Our mission is resting on the foundation of his authority. Christians, we march off into spiritual warfare knowing that he who has sent us has supreme authority over all things. Shouldn't that motivate us? Shouldn't that make us people who are on mission to know the authority Jesus has that we've been uh, commanded by, the one who has commanded us? Shouldn't we be motivated by that? Shouldn't that get us off of our seats? If a soldier in our army is given an order, I guarantee you he will obey that order to the degree to which the person giving the order has authority. If it's one of his fellow soldiers that's not higher ranked than him, he's going to ignore the order. If it's a squad leader or something that gives him the order, he'll obey it. But he won't obey it with nearly the amount of enthusiasm that if the United States president got off of Air Force One and gave him that order directly, there's authority. And we have an authority much higher than anyone who can fly on Air Force One. We have the one who is the supreme authority over all the universe, and he gives us a mission. And how foolish we are to sit around and ignore the mission. 
This is the great assertion that our mission stands on. Only when we see his authority, only when it's in view, can we then understand and embrace our assignment. And that's the next thing. There is a great assignment that the mission of Harbin's must remain faithful to. Verse 19. Here's the assignment. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now the first thing I want you to notice is simply the word therefore, which proves what I just said, namely that our assignment rests on the assertion of his authority. Therefore, thus, because, consequently, as a result, hence, for that reason, in light of, whatever word you want to put there, but in light of, or because of verse 18, we are to do verse 19. First, his authority compels us to carry it out. We've been commanded to do verse 19, but secondly, his authority enables us to carry it out. But what is this assignment? Well, we need to understand the structure of this text. There are four verbs in this sentence here. They are go, make disciples, baptizing, and teaching. Clearly, the focus of this text is on the verb to make disciples. The other verbs are really participles. But that verb, make disciples, is the imperative verb of the whole text. It is the focus. It is the central command. We are to make disciples. Now, Being a good Southern Baptist, you probably grew up here in the Great Commission a lot. What did you think was the primary verb of that sentence? Go, right? Go. And and you know what? With good intention, we focused as Southern Baptists so much on going, 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 that we forgot or missed the point that we are to be making disciples. Making disciples is the central focus of this command, of this text. Now, the other verbs, which I said are really participles, which are verbal adjectives, they describe how we are to make disciples. So they too carry um, the weight of command, an imperative weight with them, because they're attached to the central command to make disciples. So please don't think that the only command here is to make disciples, and then we can do that however we please. No, We are commanded to make disciples, and then we are commanded how to make the disciples. The first participle that informs us as to how we are to make disciples is translated here as go. Go. Literally, this can be translated as you are going or having gone. Jesus is saying that our mission is to be carried out as we go about our lives. As we go, wherever we go, whenever we go, however we go, we are to go on mission. Every place we go is on mission. There is not a single place you can go as a Christian and not be on mission. Period. We go, we are to be going. Christianity is not a static faith. It is an outward focused faith of taking the gospel message to all. It means to, to as you go to work. As you go to school, as you go to the neighborhood picnic, as you go to the ball game, as you go to the homeschool group, as you go to the family reunion, as you go, you go with the gospel. And so you build relationships for gospel purposes. You're to be alert to gospel conversations. You're to be bold with gospel faithfulness. And you're to be on your knees asking for gospel opportunities. And you're to bring folks to this church to hear gospel proclamation as you go. As you go. But of course this command to go is more than merely living gospel oriented lives. We know that because the extent of our going is clearly mentioned in this text. And it's staggering. It says go therefore make disciples what? Of all nations. All nations. Panta ta ethne is the Greek there. And this is not referring to nations as political entities, but to every ethnicity, to every people group, which makes that task much more daunting because one nation could have hundreds of ethnicities within it. This is a massively daunting task that Jesus has given the church. Any church that takes the assignment seriously understands that we must be involved in getting the gospel out locally, 
but also globally. And there is a sense of urgency to this command. We are called to participate in the global mission of God. We, Harbin's Community Baptist Church, are called not only to take the gospel as we go about our lives, but we are called to participate in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is our mission. We are called to go to Harbin's and Honduras. We are called to go to the people of Dekula and the people of, and I know this is the kids' favorite country to pronounce, Djibouti. Go, go, go. Here and there. We are to participate in spreading the gospel to North Americans and South Americans, to kids on our cul-de-sac and to the Kong of Cambodia. We are to have beautiful feet fitted with the gospel of peace wherever we go. We are to be involved in the spread of the gospel locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. And we are to do so by leveraging our resources, by intensifying our prayers, by training and equipping one another, and for some, by going home and packing up and going away from here into a dark corner of this globe. I hope to share with you over the next few weeks how we can mobilize Harbins to be a church that more urgently and intentionally participates in our call to go. We must be a church with the the ends of the earth in our sights. Aiming for anything less is aiming for less than what Jesus told us to aim for. Now, if that feels overwhelming to you and unsettling to you, You're thinking what I think. We're a small church. We have limited resources. Imagine for a minute how it felt to those to whom Jesus originally spoke these words. Eleven weak, frightened, and insignificant Jewish men on an unnamed mountain in an unimportant region in an occupied and fragile nation in the Middle East. This this was... This just had to be overwhelming for them. I, I sit here and prepare the sermon and think about these things, and I, and I get overwhelmed by thinking about how, how, how God can we even begin to participate in, in this task in any sort of meaningful and faithful way. How on earth can we possibly do this? And God has to remind me that there were 11 scared Jewish men on a mountain that first heard this same mission. This was a massive paradigm shift for these men. You see, Judaism had been a come-and-see faith, not a go-and-tell faith. Now, God had always had the nations in view. Habakkuk 2.14, one of my favorite verses, says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But the old covenant was structured where Israel was to be a light so that the nations would stream to Zion to come and worship Yahweh at a fixed place, the temple, and a fixed land, the promised land. But now... By the blood of Christ, a new covenant, a better covenant, has been inaugurated. And this new covenant is structured where the church is to carry the light to the nations so they might worship Yahweh in spirit and in truth, not in a fixed temple, but as temples of the Holy Spirit themselves. And no longer limited to a fixed parcel of land in the Middle East, But now the true worship of God extends across the oceans, across the mountains, across the deserts, across the forest, across the jungles, to the ends of the earth. The beautiful shadows of the old covenant have given way to the glorious substance of the new covenant. And this was certainly astounding to these 11 men. These men who were used to a come and see faith were told to go and tell And they were to take the saving message of God's redeeming love to all nations. These men, these men, these men had scattered when Jesus was arrested. These men had already lost 8.4% of their membership. That's Judas hanging himself, all right? These men, these men whose leader lied three times to make sure no one associated him with Jesus. These guys, these men, these men were to make disciples of all nations. These men, this church, this church. Oh, friend, let us see that our assignment does not rest in our power, but in his. 
Within a generation, these 11 men, by the gracious power of Christ, had turned the world upside down. We are to go in light of his authority and make disciples of all nations. What does it mean to make disciples? And we'll talk about this more over the next few weeks. The word disciple means follower or apprentice or pupil. It was commonly used for those who formerly came under the the tutelage of a rabbi or a wise man. It referred to being totally committed to a teacher, even forsaking all other teachings and all other loyalties for the sake of this one teacher. And so when Jesus calls his disciples, he is commanding people and calls people to be disciples. He is commanding people to come under his teaching and his authority. In other words, true discipleship involves lordship. If Christ is not your Lord, friends, you are not a true disciple. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Follow him and submit to his authority. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's identifying with Christ and submitting to Christ no matter what the cost. And that's why Jesus tells us to baptize those who become disciples. Verse 19, second half of verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is the the entry point of true discipleship. Now, it in and of itself does not make one a disciple, but if one truly is a disciple, then he or she will be baptized, for this is the first step of obedience and submission to Christ. Baptism isn't some right that you must be worthy of and that you can therefore just opt to participate in whether you want to or not. It's an act of submission and obedience to Christ that you are commanded to participate in. It marks your allegiance to Christ. It marks your submission to Christ. It marks your identity with Christ. It marks your union with Christ. For as you are baptized, immersed, the word means that, as you are immersed, and so the mode of baptism is important, friends, as you are immersed into the waters, you are publicly proclaiming your faith in and union with Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection are now your death burial and resurrection. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This means that entering into discipleship involves faith and repentance and forgiveness of sins. And this baptism is, is our entrance into the new covenant Just as physical circumcision after physical birth marked the entrance of all Jewish males into the physical people of God in the Old Covenant, so now baptism following spiritual circumcision of the heart, spiritual rebirth, marks all peoples, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, and free. It marks their entrance into the spiritual people of God. And those who are part of the New Covenant people of God are to be baptized as a mark that they have been spiritually reborn and are now disciples of Jesus. And so not only is the is immersion important, not only is the mode of baptism important, guess what? The order of baptism is extremely important too. Extremely important. Matter of fact, I would say that if you are not following the biblical mode of baptism and the biblical order of baptism, you are violating the Great Commission. Finally, this baptism is in the name of the triune God. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Name here is singular, but three names are given. This is one of the clearest attestations of the Trinity in Scripture. We are to be disciples baptized into the triune name of our one and only God. Because all persons of the Godhead are involved in the redemption of a sinner. The Father chooses sinners in eternity past. The Father enters into creation to be our redemption and our mediator. And the Spirit opens blind eyes of sinners and gives them a new heart to embrace their redemption by faith. So Harbins, we are to to make disciples by going, by taking the gospel out to those who need to hear. We are to make disciples by baptizing them, carrying out this vital ordinance that marks those we reach as members of the new covenant people of God. And we are to make disciples by teaching. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching. Now, there's no hidden meaning here. Okay, teaching simply means to instruct, to direct, or to admonish. God's people are to be a teaching people. We are not mandated to make decisions, but make disciples. We are not to make moment-in-time converts to Christianity, but lifelong students of Christ. This is what the church is called to do, to teach. Discipleship involves teaching. You are being discipled right now. Whenever you hear the word of God preached and taught, discipleship is happening. I'll be honest, I get frustrated sometimes, especially in our church, our size, and there's only so much we can do. I get frustrated sometimes when I hear someone say, I want more discipleship. Because a lot of times what people want is more fellowship or more buddies or some type of mentorship. And those things are not bad. They should be happening. But discipleship is not limited to those things. Discipleship happens any time the word of God is taught in the church. So when someone says, does your church have discipleship? You bet we do. Every Sunday morning in Bible study and in preaching and every weeknights during the week, we have discipleship going on because the word of God is being preached and is being taught. And so discipleship is happening. Now, can our discipleship be stronger? Absolutely. But we cannot be reductionists who limit discipleship to programs and systems. Here's biblical discipleship. You want to, I'll read for you biblical discipleship. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And they devoted themselves what? To the apostles what? Teaching. Or this, Acts 5.42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is what the early church did. They taught in small groups, in large groups, and therefore discipleship happened. Teaching here is a present tense participle, meaning we are to teach and to keep on teaching. Therefore, this means we also must be lifelong learners, all of us. Lifelong learners. You never graduate from the school of Jesus. You must keep on learning, and so the church must keep on teaching. Teaching must be the mark of a faithful church. Harbins, we must be a teaching church. If we have great one-on-one ministry, great fellowship, great mercy ministry, great ministries to kids, women, and men, but we fail to have rock-solid, doctrinally sound, and deeply passionate teaching and preaching, then we have failed to carry out the Great Commission. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So we are to teach. But what is our goal? Is it, is it to make smart, biblically literate, and well-spoken Christians filled with all sorts of knowledge and wisdom? Well, I hope that happens. But that's not the goal, according to Jesus. Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Obedience is the goal. Observe here would be better translated obey. As your pastor, I care more about down-to-earth, needy-gritty obedience to God's word than I do about how sophisticated your theological categories and constructs are. Don't consider yourself a mature Christian if you can list out the ordo salutis, but you refuse to order your life according to the clear teaching of God's word. If you have no idea what superlapsarianism is, but you are daily fighting indwelling sin to be a better husband and father, then as your shepherd, I'm happy. But if you can give me a full-blown defense of full preterism while neglecting to see or even care for those who are hurting in the church, then as your shepherd, I am not happy. Because what Jesus wants us to aim for is obedience, not just knowledge. Now, I am not saying, I am not saying that we ignore or neglect studying doctrine or that we refuse to have deep theology in the church. But if our 
if our study, if our teaching doesn't produce obedience, if it doesn't produce observance, then something is seriously wrong. Something's wrong. Now, we are to study. We are to study deeply. Jesus himself says, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. All. So if part of our assignment is to teach, and the goal of that teaching is obedience, well, the curriculum for that teaching is the whole counsel of God. Here's the curriculum. So we got what we're supposed to be doing. We've got the goal, and we have the curriculum. All of what Jesus commanded us. And we can infer here from Jesus' words and from the other things he's said in the Gospels, and since he is the Word of God incarnate, that all the written Word of God, since it speaks of him, should be our curriculum. And so we are commanded by Jesus through the Apostle Paul that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I hope that, Harbins, we can say with the Apostle Paul that we did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. So in light of Jesus, who has given us all authority, we are to go make disciples of all peoples and baptize all of them and teach all of them and teach them all with all the word of God. And we can do this only because he is with us always. And that's our third point. There is a great assurance that the missions of Har- mission of Harbins must rely fully in. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a glorious truth. This is great assurance. What a guarantee. What confidence it should give us. This is why these 11 Jewish men would later be called men who have turned the world upside down in Acts 17, 6. This final part of the Great Commission, this assurance, is connected with the first part. The authority of Christ. He is with us because he is sovereign and he is reigning. So he can promise to be with us always and keep that promise. How many of you dads in here are like me and you have failed to keep some of your promises? Someone came by our house this week and was um, looking at the treehouse I built this summer. And they said, well, my dad's been promising to build me a treehouse for a long time. I said, well, I understand. I've been promising that one for 13 years. Noah's now too old to play in it, and I made the promise to him first. We're inconsistent. We fail. Jesus fails not. When he promises, he keeps his promise. He will be with us to the very end of the age. It literally reads, I am with you all the days to the end of the age. All the days, there is not a day, not an hour, not a minute, not a second, not a nanosecond that Christ, the preeminent sovereign of the universe, is not with his people. This should give us courage, it should give us peace, it should give us joy, wisdom, power, love, and whatever else we might need in order to accomplish this mission. We have him and we have all we need. I will never leave you nor forsake you is his promise to his people. But how is he with us? Well, certainly, he is with us in his divine omnipotence and omnipresence. But there is not a space on this planet where Jesus isn't present in his divine omnipresence. But he is with us in an even greater way. He is with us because we are in him. We are united to him, and his spirit lives in us. I think we sometimes speak of Jesus being with us like like a person. I mean, maybe you've heard this before. Um... You hear it all the time, maybe after someone, close to someone has passed away. Usually it's like sports, okay? So you have a sports um, person, and all throughout the broadcast they've been talking about, well, so-and-so lost his mother earlier this year, and he's, you know, he's fighting through the, the, the emotional pain of all that, and what a great game he had. And then they'll interview him at the end, he goes, oh, yeah, you know, I know mom was with me the whole time. And you hear people talk like, yeah, mom was with me the whole time, or, or so-and-so, I feel them with me. I think that's the way people in the church think about Jesus being with us. And that's utter foolishness. First of all, mom was not with the sports star. Secondly, Jesus is with us in a very real and dynamic way through our union with him and the presence of his spirit in us. So he's not just with us in some sort of um, loose, mystical way that, oh well, you know, we just feel his encouragement He is giving us the power and the words to carry out this mission. 
He is with us. This mention of him being with us is seen in the other Great Commission passages through the mention of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Luke 24.47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's the presence of the Spirit of God that transformed these 11 men into world changers. It changed petrified Peter into Petra, through whom Christ would build his church, a people whom the gates of hell will not prevail against. Oh, Harbins, we have the Holy Spirit in us. If we are truly believers, we have the presence of the Spirit. Therefore, we have the power from on high to take the gospel to the neighborhoods and the nations, to teach to baptize, to make disciples. The success of our church does not rest on our programs or our popularity, on our building or our budget, on our people or our preacher. Our success rests on the power of the Holy Spirit of God, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts in Zechariah 4, 6. Oh, friends, because we have the Spirit of God within us and we are therefore united to Christ who reigns supreme, we can be confident, as 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. So let me conclude this morning. This is our mission, our great commission. It rests on a great assertion. It involves a great assignment. It's kept going by a great assurance. And it was my confidence that this is the mission of God that led me two years ago to change our mission statement of our church from a very generic and I think ill-informed love God, love others, spread joy to the world. That was our old mission statement. I changed it two or three years ago to this. Our mission is to make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. Where did I put the blueprints? There they are. That's, that's our design. But when I look at the design, and here I have a graphic of it. Here's some blueprints for you. And I look at that design, I ask myself, how are we doing? And I see that we could do so much better. And I think God has some exciting things he wants us to step out in faith and do. This little design here, it says to make, mature, mobilize disciples. Okay, and there's the word gospel. And it's this circular thing we make. We are baptizing people, baptizing disciples. We are maturing them. We are teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. And then we are sending them back out to go, go, make more disciples. So it's this circular thing, but the central focus, as is the central focus in this text, is the making of disciples. If we're just making converts or making numbers to make our budget, but we're not maturing disciples and mobilizing them, we are totally failing. We're totally failing. This is our mission. This is our purpose. This is the purpose of the church which Christ has, has built. It is to make, mature, and mobilize disciples. Now, I want to take the next three weeks to break down these things more specifically regarding what it looks like at Harvest. I want to share how I see, how I dream of God doing these things at Harvest. I want to encourage us, stir us up, but I also want to challenge us and push us out of our comfort zones. I'm convinced that God is doing something special at our church and I'm convinced that we haven't even begun to see the beginning of it. I love this verse, and I'll end with this verse. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for you are the God who has given us all we need to carry out this mission. Jesus, you have all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You reign supreme. But how many of us in this room are living a life on a type of mission that reflects a command given from the one who reigns supreme? How many of us are like the private in the army that simply got an order from his buddy in the next door tent instead of the one that got an order from the President of the United States? God, forgive us of our lethargy. Forgive me of my lethargy. Lord, we do not want to be a lukewarm church. A church that you spit out of your mouth. So God, stir up something in us. And Lord, I have been so challenged this morning. I've been so challenged because I, like probably most of us in here, I look at the wrong indicators of health in a church. I look at things like budget, um, people, numbers. I look at things like how energetically people are singing songs. I look at things like how smooth the media runs. God, forgive us. We need to be looking at the only indicators that we should be looking at. Namely, are we making, are we maturing, and are we mobilizing disciples of Jesus Christ with the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ? Oh, Father, help us to examine ourselves over the course of these next three weeks and set us on fire, but set us on fire with the right things. So God, we ask these things in your name, your precious and holy and perfect name. Jesus, the name that is above all names, we pray these things in your name. Amen.